reading, verse 9. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So here we see the why, right? Not necessarily, but the more we dig into it, we see the why. And we're going to go on through that. Why is a question uh, that we ask through every stage of life, right? Our son uh, is only 16 months old, so he hasn't gotten to the stage where he asks why for everything, right? And kids get to that stage, they ask why. Well, you need to do this because of this. Why? 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 And right, we go throughout life asking that question. Uh, in school, we ask why all the time, why we have to do certain things. At work, uh, all the time it happens at work. Why? Why do I have to do this? Right? At home, through every stage of life, why is a question we ask often. All right? So the question we're looking at today um, that we're seeking to answer today is why do we worship the who, right? Or Jesus. Why do, that just sounded like a Dr. Seuss book right there, but why do we worship Jesus? All right? Why is it so important that our focus is on Jesus? Why is it so important that when we come to church, the focus, the music, uh, the scripture reading, the prayer, the teaching is all focused on Jesus? Why is it essential that as believers, as we leave the church building, that our focus as the church is on Jesus? Right? Every day of our life, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and so on, right? Why is it essential that our lives are built upon the rock on Jesus? We're going to look at that question today and answer some of that. I think it's important to note that the, uh, that the Magi, as they fell to the ground and worshipped the king, they worshipped Jesus, then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they left after that. Right? They weren't looking to gain something from Jesus. I think that's an important thing to note in this, right? They weren't necessarily looking to gain gold and frankincense and myrrh from Jesus because that's what they gave to Jesus. Too often we treat Jesus and our culture treats Jesus like there is some kind of earthly material blessing to gain from Jesus and that's why we worship. And that is a terrible, terrible, uh, false misconception, right? About why we worship Christ. We don't worship the, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to gain some earthly material thing, right? The, the, the three wise men here, or however, however many wise men were here, were not looking to gain gold and frankincense and myrrh from Jesus as they gave that up and they left. They simply worshiped Jesus. Um, if we look back throughout the history of the Bible, right? If we look at the history of Israel, why did they so often cling to other gods and worship other gods? Right? Why did, Jesus, did God have to tell them, you shall have no other idol before me? Right? Is it because they, they were just in love with these golden images and these wooden images and they just wanted to worship those things? No. Right? What was at the heart of worship of false idols? It was the gain of some kind of material, earthly blessing. Right? I just finished writing a, a paper on Nineveh and going over the different gods of Nineveh, Ishtar and uh, Dagon 
and just these gods and goddesses that they worshipped, they worshipped in order to gain something from them, right? They worshipped to, to gain uh, fish blessing, for example, from Dagon, so that they could have plenty of fish to eat, right? Or to increase their love life, or to increase fertility, or to have victory in battle, right? And the Israelites did the same thing as they went and worshipped these false idols, these false gods. It was so that they could gain something. That's what they were looking at. They were looking for in that worship of those idols. And today we don't necessarily worship idols, right? So we don't, it's hard for us to connect at times uh, when, when we look at the Israelites and, well, we don't, we don't have a wooden image standing in our house. We don't worship that, right? We don't go home to a, to a golden calf and worship that. So it's hard for us oftentimes to connect, but ultimately at the heart of that idol worship is the same thing that we deal with every day as we run to the God of our career, as we run to the God of uh, our family, as we run to the God of our favorite sports teams or food or our savings accounts or our investments or whatever that idol looks like in our life. Because we are looking to gain something here on this earth from those things. And we are looking, we have this, this, uh, this craving, this craving within us that only can be satisfied by Christ, yet we run to these other things that we think will eternally satisfy our spiritual cravings. And those things will always leave us dry, will always leave us empty, as did the idols as the Israelites worshipped them, as they soon found out that those those looking for those earthly possessions and to gain here on this earth was, was all in vain. Looking to run after and cling after these gods, these idols, these things that we pursue each and every day, and even, yes, even believers pursue often, right? I have to constantly pray, Lord, remove whatever is taking up my mind, my thought life. Take that away from me if it's not about you. That's oftentimes my idol. Right? What, I, what I find myself daydreaming about or thinking the most about or talking the most about is most often my idol because I'm looking to gain some kind of earthly material blessing. The Magi, as they gave up this gold and frankincense and myrrh, were not seeing Jesus as a means to an end. Right? That's the problem with the prosperity gospel. And so many other of the false gospels that are out there, right? They use Jesus as a stepping stone to the next step, right? To whatever your dream or your goal or whatever you desire most in life. And Jesus just becomes a means to an end and someone thinks that they can gain that thing from the worship of Christ. And Christ calls us to worship Him for who He is. Right? As the Magi were worshiping Jesus not as a means to an end, but as the end himself. The Magi saw Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of their life. Everything that they had been searching for as they, as they studied, uh, the stars and as they saw that star and they went and worshiped Jesus, they saw Jesus as the fulfillment of all their longings, of all their cravings. They saw Jesus as the one who could satisfy them. Not gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Those are the things they gave up to Christ. Right? The call to us is the same thing. We don't use Jesus as a means to an end, but see Him as the end Himself. Jesus is our ultimate gain. 
Jesus is our ultimate goal. Jesus is our ultimate fulfillment and our ultimate satisfaction. The only one who will fulfill and satisfy us. Let's uh, turn over to John chapter 9. Go to John chapter 9. As we look at a familiar passage here. So the first point there is Jesus is not just a means to an end. We worship Jesus. Why do we worship him? Not to gain some kind of earthly material blessing. Right? Not to gain something. The, the, the wise men were not looking to gain, like I said, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We also worship Jesus in suffering. Look at John chapter 9, starting in verse 1. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents. Here's the key. But it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. This goes completely against where our culture, uh, especially our very Bible Belt uh Bible, church focus, church building focused culture tells us, right, that being a Christian is easy, right? And if you pray enough and you believe enough, uh, that you won't go through suffering, that Jesus will keep you from suffering. But Jesus himself didn't even keep himself from suffering, right? So why should we expect any differently? We, we've been going over a series, and we will continue that after this series is over on the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, Blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right? Suffering is something to rejoice in. Jesus, one time does Jesus say, take joy, throughout the Gospels. Does he say, rejoice? And that's when you're persecuted. Rejoice when hardships and persecution comes upon you. That is something to rejoice in, and we worship through that, even in our suffering. Suffering, often, if we have the right focus and the right mindset, right, and the eyes of our hearts are opened to what God is showing us, suffering often causes us to love and trust Jesus more. Suffering can be used to bring us back to himself. Right? So often we see this, we see this theme throughout the Old Testament as God's covenant people cling to some other idol and are living in wickedness. Right? And they go into captivity, whether that was to Assyria or Babylon or Egypt or wherever they went to captivity or had some kind of attack or some kind of plague or something happened to them and they went back to God. Right? The suffering, God often used the suffering and the pain to bring them back to the one thing that truly matters. Himself. <clears throat> if we look in real quickly, you don't have to go there, but I'll flip over to Second uh, Corinthians chapter four, verse seventeen and eighteen. Paul says, "For momentary light affliction." Right. So he, the language he's using there is this: this pain, this hardship that you are going through. And this is a guy who was beaten and shipwrecked and imprisoned and tried, and people tried to kill him over and over and over again, and eventually was beheaded for his belief in Christ. Right. He, he calls that kind of affliction stuff that we don't go through here in America. He called it for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, 
but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Those are the things we focus on. The things that are not seen on Christ, on His glory. And that momentary light affliction is not just something, okay, i got to say, I have to endure through this suffering. Right? He's saying that produces something within you. Some kind of peculiar glory, as John Piper calls it, right? That we don't exactly know what that's going to be like until heaven. So affliction and pain and suffering is not just something to just say, all right, I got to bear down and get through this, right? It's something to, to pray about, say, Jesus, what are you trying to show me through this suffering? How are you trying to make me more like yourself? Because Jesus will do that. Right, Suffering is not something negative, but if we are in Christ, it should be seen as something positive. If we believe the words of Jesus. If we believe that we are blessed, happy, makarios. Right? If we are persecuted for righteousness sake. If we go through suffering. If God's glory can be shown through us, as it says there in uh, John 9, 1, or John 9, 3, sorry. But it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Right? This man went through life blind. So that God's works, God's glory, God's beauty could be seen through him. And this only makes sense to hearts that have been changed by Christ. This will not make sense if you would rather have your eyes. If you would rather have your eyes than Jesus, this is not going to make sense to you. If we would rather have anything than Jesus, this will not make sense to you. Right? And that's really the question here. Would you rather have your eyes and go through life seeing, but not truly seeing? Right? Would you rather go through life with you fill in the blank than Jesus and that thing is your idol? I had a pastor ask me that one time. He said, if everything was taken away, your wife, your kid, your job, everything that you cared about, everything was wiped off the face of the earth, would you still love Jesus? When you come to that line that you say, I will love Jesus until this is taken away from me, that is truly your idol, not Jesus. The thing that you say, I will lose all this until you get to this point for the sake of Christ. That's your idol. That has stuck with me. I don't want anything to get in the way of Christ. As much as I love my wife, as much as, as, much as I love my son, as much as I love uh, being in ministry, right? As much as I love some of the things of this earth, that probably too much. None of those things compare to the glory, to the beauty of knowing Jesus. None of those things compare to having the relationship with Christ, the forgiveness and grace and mercy that He has shown me. That's what my life should be based on. So that's the question. Would we rather have fill in the blank or Jesus? And are we willing to suffer well so that Jesus gets the glory? When we suffer well, as Christians, pointing to Jesus, saying our focus is not on this earth. Jesus does get the glory. I love uh, the prayer of D.A. Carson, uh, a pastor and author his, of his wife, as they were praying for a lady to, uh, who had cancer in their church. And, and this is not me saying you shouldn't pray uh, for the healing of others. That's not what I'm saying at all. But as they were going around, the focus was so much on, Lord, you just have to heal her. We, we know you're going to heal her if we believe it enough. And it came to D.A. Carson's wife. 
And he prayed, Lord, I pray that your will be done, and if it is your will that she die, help her to die well. And that sounds like a very harsh prayer, but it is a very mercy-filled prayer. Because what she's really saying is, if it is her time to die, help her to die with the glory of Christ in mind. Right? In living and in dying, in sickness and in health, whatever we go through, it should point to the glory of Christ. It should not change our view of how beautiful and good Jesus is. And God can often use our suffering for His glory and to point others to Him. <clears throat> so what is the better story there? Right? Is it the easy life? If that's what you're looking for, then a radical life in Christ is not for you. If we're looking for an easy life to walk through life uh, with no pain, with no hardships, with no suffering, to just get to the end of our life and enjoy all the money we've made, right? then the life of Christ, a life of following Jesus, is not for you. Right? That was the point of Jesus uh, uh, telling the, the rich man who apparently had kept all of the commandments right, to go and sell all his possessions. And he went away sad because he could not, right? Because those were his idols. Those were the things that he put in the place of Christ. What do we want? Do we want that easy life or do we want to know the sweetness of Jesus? Some of the people who have lived the easiest lives are some of the people who are the most nonchalant about living for Christ. Some of the people who have suffered the most with Jesus know the sweetness of Jesus the most and are the most radical ones about Christ. Are the most radical people I've ever known are people who have suffered time and time again, but they have suffered with Jesus, with the glory of Jesus in mind. And because of that suffering, they knew the sweetness of Jesus more and more. Let's go on. We're going to flip back to Psalms now. Psalm 63. Psalm chapter 63, starting in verse 1. Familiar passage here. David says, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. This is uh, an important point of view that David is trying to point us to. He's saying, in this land, right, on this earth, my soul thirsts and yearns for God. And look at this. He says, in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He's not literally saying there is no water, right? He's saying the way he sees it, nothing else on this earth is going to satisfy his cravings, that yearning, that thirsting, like God will. So in his, from his point of view, there is no water, right? There is nothing else that's going to satisfy that thirst, that's going to satisfy that craving for God, right? The sad thing is, is we are surrounded by people who think that this earth does offer water. Right? In other words, we are surrounded by people who think that money is going to satisfy their cravings, or fame is going to satisfy their cra cravings, or an awesome spouse is going to satisfy those cravings, or enough kids <clears throat> excuse me, are going to satisfy those cravings. 
right? Or good grades in school are going to satisfy those cravings. Or the highest position in your, at your job is going to satisfy that craving, right? Around, we live around people, maybe some people in here, who think that this earth offers water. And what David is telling us there is nothing else in this dry and weary land offers water. Nothing else satisfies that thirst, satisfies those yearnings, except God. Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. A soul that is satisfied by Jesus whose thirst has been quenched by Jesus, who has tasted of the living water, sees the rest of the world as, quote-unquote, not water, or non-satisfactory, or things that will not satisfy their eternal cravings, which is Jesus himself. Let's go on. Verse 2. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary, to see your power and your glory. Says, I'm not seeing those other things, those things that, that will uh, temporarily satisfy me and will still leave me thirsty. Those not water things. But I just see you, your power and your glory. A satisfied soul, soul sees nothing but God's power and glory through what he does. One of the best compliments I think you can give is, you talk about Jesus too much. <laughs> right? If we are people who are to be all about Jesus, who are to be sold out for Christ, who are to follow Him with every aspect of our life, that should be one of the greatest compliments we ever get, is that our focus is too much on Jesus. Because that's all we see. That's all David could see, even through his sorrow, even through his sin, even through some of the wickedness, the atrocities that he had committed. He said, all I see is your power and your glory, God. Let's go on. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. David's saying here, God, I see your loving kindness knowing you is better than even being alive. Again, the same question as with the eyes. If you would rather have life here on this earth than know God, than know Christ, then this will not make sense to you. If you would rather say, I want to live a long and happy and, and uh, easy life here on this earth, rather than know Jesus, rather than suffer well with Jesus, and that might even cost you your life, this will not make sense to you. But David says, God, to know your loving kindness, to know your grace and your mercy, to know uh, all the, the loving things that you have done to me, that you have shown to me, as David is writing this and probably thinking back, to the time when he had a man killed and stole his wife. Right? And realizing that he is still called a man after God's own heart. He is still a man that God has shown love to and shown grace to and shown mercy. Nothing that David has done deserved that. And he's saying that's better than life. Therefore, my lips will praise you. Therefore, I will sing of your glory and your power. Night and day. Right? I will live for you with my life. Does our lifestyle suggest that? Ask yourself this question, Christian. Does your lifestyle suggest that earth or heaven is your home? Right? And it's real easy here in church to say, oh, well, heaven's my home, right? That's what I'm longing for. That's where I'm going. That's where I'm going to spend an eternity. But does our lifestyle follow suit? 
The way we live, the way we use our money, the way we use our time, the way we talk, our thought life, the way we treat people. Does that suggest that earth is our home or heaven is our home? Oftentimes the way I treat people and the way I talk and the way I think shows that my focus is on the here and now, the short 70 or 80 or 90 or 30 years or however long I'll be on this earth. Right, And that is where my focus falls too often instead of eternity. Instead of realizing that this earth is temporary, that heaven is my true home. What does our lifestyle suggest? Does our lifestyle suggest, like David says here, that we believe that God's loving kindness is better than life? Do we worship because we know in suffering because we know Jesus is worth it? Right Through our suffering, through our pain, can we say, you know what, I don't care if I get ran over. I don't care if, if people run over me, if people slander my name. I don't care what people say about me for the sake of Christ because Jesus is worth it. Right When someone cuts us off in traffic or when someone says something bad about you at work, what is your response? Is your response, well, I'm going to stand up for myself? It usually suggests that we believe that this temporary body and this temporary earth is our home. Or if our response is with the, the glory of Christ in mind, that suggests that eternity, heaven, is our home. What does our lifestyle suggest? Do we live as if we know that only Jesus satisfies? I can say that. I can know it here. But does my life follow suit? Do I live as if I know that only Jesus has satisfied my eternal cravings? That only Jesus has given me the the fulfillment that nothing else on earth can give? Only Jesus' grace and mercy have satisfied me. Only when I have tasted from the living water do I have purpose. Do I live that way? Christian, do we live that way? And do we... Live as if we really believe that God's loving kindness is better than life. Right? Can we say that and mean it? That God, even if you take me tomorrow, even if I don't get to live a full life, even if I leave the things of this earth behind, I know that knowing you, being in your presence, as Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Right? Paul didn't care if he died, but but he knew as Lottie Moon says, Lottie Moon said, uh, we are, I'm trying to remember how she said it, we are uh, immortal until our mission is done. Right? In other words, until our time, God has set our time of when we will go, until we have done that mission, right? Until we have glorified Christ with our life for however long Jesus gives us, we are immortal. And we should live as such, we should live with the focus of life is about eternity, not the things, the temporary, fleeting things of this earth. Does our lifestyle suggest that we believe earth or heaven is our home? Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse, in verse 15, we see Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus. 
Um, we see uh, just a beautiful prayer here that he, remember, we must keep this in mind. He is praying for believers. Let's start in verse 15. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Right? Paul deeply and intimately cared for these people, for these people that he had ministered to and pointed to Jesus. He cared for them. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Paul's praying for the Ephesian believers here that they would continue to see God's goodness with the eyes of their heart, not know it just with a head knowledge, but with a heart knowledge, and that they would fall more in love with Jesus because of that. I love the things that Paul prays about that they would see in Jesus. He doesn't say, I pray that they would see you, Jesus, so that uh, they may be healed of all their sicknesses. Right? I pray that they may see you, Jesus, so that they would have, uh, so that all their dreams would come true, so that they would have all the riches they want, that, so that they would have the easy life that they want. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, right? The calling that Christ has given to us, the hope that we have. It's not a, a hope that say, oh, I hope I go to heaven, right? It's a sure thing that I know his hope is my anchor. Right? That is my hope that I know that I will spend an eternity with Christ. Therefore, my mind is focused on eternal things, not on fleeting things. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? It is amazing to me that Jesus' inheritance are his covenant people. Us, saints, those who are in Christ. And there's glory in that. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe, right? The goodness through suffering, the mercy that we don't deserve, the grace that we don't deserve, his loving kindness that we don't deserve, that none of us have earned. But those are the things that when we focus on those things, eternal things, we focus on Christ. We will fall more and more in love with him. Those are the things that Paul is focusing on here. He's not saying that we should love Christ because we think we will gain some kind of earthly material blessing here. But that we would know him with a heart knowledge. That we would see Jesus with the eyes of our heart. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Job 42.5. After Job has gone through this suffering and everything is taken away from him. And he said, I had known of you by the hearing of the ear. In other words, I knew God with a heart knowledge, with a head knowledge. I, I knew who God was. But now the eyes of my heart have seen you. He uses that, that same uh, language that Paul is using here. In other words, he used to know of God through this head knowledge. He, he knew of God, but things were going so easy with him, he didn't have this intimate, deep connection with God until he went through suffering with God. And now he knew him on this personal, intimate relationship and loved him more because of it. If that takes suffering, 
I pray that that's what would happen. If it takes me suffering to fall more in love with Jesus, that is my prayer. That I would suffer so that I would love Jesus more. If we truly see loving Jesus as the ultimate supreme of life, and that's the reason why we worship, we should pray the same thing, Christian. Let's go to verse 19. Start the end of verse 19. These are in, in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and a power and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's all about Jesus. Why do we worship? Because of those things. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, he conquered Satan's sin and death on our behalf. Because he is seated at the right hand of God. Because his work is completed for us. Because he is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and his name is above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, right? So it is the one to come, the age that is to come, right? When, when God will rule, and he already does. That's the good, the good news. This earth will pass away. Jesus is reigning now, as it says, not only in this age, and after this earth, long after this earth passes away, Jesus will still reign. As he says, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. All things, right? In other words, it's not just the church. It's not just uh, Christians. It's not just the things that are his, right? All things are in subjection to Christ. There is no part of this earth that Jesus does not say mine. There is no part of this universe, of this galaxy, of whatever you want to call it, right? There's no part of creation that Jesus does not say mine, that Jesus has not breathed life into. He is ruling. He is sovereign. He is supreme. He put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church. Look at this, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Right? Jesus sustains the church. Is the church this building? No. It's us who are in Christ. The universal church, right? Those who are in Christ here on this earth. That is ruled by Christ. Not by ourselves. It's not up to us. That is, that should be great news for us. Dr. Charles Hodge, who was uh, a professor at Princeton Seminary, in the early 1800s, said it like this, The source of life to the church, which is Jesus, is inexhaustible and immortal. In other words, the church, the body of believers in this earth, is not going to end because it's sustained by Christ, because it's not up to us. It's not sustained by you and I. It's sustained by Jesus. He is inexhaustible. He is immortal. He is our great high priest. He is the one that we cling to, that we long for. He is the one who sustains us. Jesus sustains us, and we as the church can rest in the fact that it is all up to Christ. We can rest in the fact that it is Him. It's all about Jesus.
That's why we worship. And therefore, we can focus on our created uh, mission. We can focus on our created purpose, which, as Isaiah 43, 7 tells us, is to glorify God. Right? We were created for Him. We were created for His glory, to make much of God. That's not just here on Sunday mornings or Sunday nights or Wednesday evenings. Right? That is every day life, whatever uh, job, whatever vocation we've been called to, in, in whatever family we have, in whoever we come into contact with, our, our neighbors, not just this some idea of a neighbor, but your literal neighbors. Right? Literal people that you come into contact with to point them to Jesus. To make much of Jesus. Why do we worship Jesus? It's because of the who. Right? Who matters? Right? We worship because He is worthy of that. We don't worship to gain some kind of earthly material blessing. We don't worship because we think God will keep us from suffering. We worship even in suffering. We worship because we believe that only Jesus satisfies. We know that only He satisfies us. We worship because we are in love with the fact that Jesus is ruler over everything. Ask yourself that, Christian. When you read verses like uh, Ephesians 1.20, where which He brought about in Christ, when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and, a power, and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things in subjection under His feet, and gave him his head over all the things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. When you read those things, does that make your heart sing for joy, for the glory of Christ? Or are we thinking, that's not focused on me. That's not talking about me. Right? When we're singing songs up here about how wonderful and amazing and glorious Jesus is, uh, as as Cody Hodges, who spoke at a, uh, a men's conference we went to a couple weeks ago, or a couple months ago, says, "When you have been changed and fulfilled by Christ, this is not your response as you're singing about His glory, right? Our response should be with joy, complete joy in the One who has saved us, who has made us new, who has changed us." Our response is not, should not be apathy. Our response should be a purpose-filled, joy-filled life that is completely focused on Christ, where we live a lifestyle suggesting that earth is not our home, that heaven is. A lifestyle suggesting that we do not focus on the fleeting, temporary things of this earth, which is very easy to do, but we focus on eternal, kingdom, heavenly things which are focused on Christ. We focus on His glory. So why do we worship? Because of the who? Because Jesus is worth it. And He is worthy of the praise that we can give Him. And so much more. Jesus is worth it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we uh, thank You for how wonderful and glorious and marvelous You are. Jesus, thank you that you are worth it, that you are worthy of all of our praise. Jesus, that you're not some weak, wimpy, measly God, but you are ruler of all. You are in complete control. You are sovereign. You are all in all, and everything is placed under your feet. 
Everything is in subjection to you, as Ephesians 1 tells us. Jesus, that's the God we serve. And our response should not be apathy. Our response should not be a nonchalant attitude. Our response should be this life that is radical about bringing you glory and making disciples and pointing people to you, Jesus. I pray that we would see the beauty of the who, and that's you. Jesus, that's why we worship. And God, even if in suffering we would worship, and God, if it, if it takes suffering for our hearts to know you, for the eyes of our hearts to be open, I pray that that's what would happen, including in my own life. Jesus, that you would push us forth to your glory, that we would know the weight of that glory and marvel in that. Jesus, thank you for how wonderful and amazing you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So the invitation today is the same as it always is. Um, I'll be up front. We'll be focused on the glory of Christ. Um, if you are not focused on that, you are welcome to come and pray. is built on nothing less than Jesus' love and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all of the ground is sinking sand. All other ground is aching sand. When darkness seems to hide its face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds in the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. So his covenant is blood, support me in the building flood. And all around my soul is raised, even as all my movements say. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all around is sinking sand.
Amen. Let's join hands and sing this final song together. Yeah. 